open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 16, Jeremiah 16 verses 1 through 21, the word of Yahweh came to me, you shall not take a wife nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says Yahweh concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who bore them, and the fathers who fathered them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground." They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says Yahweh, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love and mercy, declares Yahweh. Both great and small shall die in this land, they shall not be buried. And no one shall lament for them, or cut himself, or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead. Nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. You shall not go into the house of feasting, to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, Why has Yahweh pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against Yahweh our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares Yahweh, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me, Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it shall no longer be said as Yahweh lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending many fishers, declares Yahweh, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because... They have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. 
O Yahweh, my strength and my refuge, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we think your commands hard. For surely that reveals that we think your promises are small. And so grant us grace to see the global glory of your plan for Christ to be exalted. And having seen it, to have ready, joyful hearts to obey your every command and accept your every providence in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. There's a flow to this text, but the flow hits some rapids such that whenever you finally catch your breath and you're able to look around, the terrain has changed drastically. We begin with one man being forbidden a family, and then we end with the nations repenting of their idolatry. How do you get from there to here, here to there? How do you go from one to the other? And the answer is grace upon grace upon grace. The strong current that carries you from one place to the other is grace. Jeremiah is emphatically forbidden not to take a family in verses 1 and 2. The word for not here is not your normal not. It's an emphatic not. It's the same word that's used in the Ten Commandments. So for Jeremiah, uh, not having a wife comes with the same kind of authority, the same kind of absoluteness as you shall not murder. But in this instance, Jeremiah is not being forbidden something sinful. He's not being forbidden something evil. He's not being forbidden that which is death. He's being forbidden that which is good and that which is intended as a blessing. Jeremiah has received many hard commands from God so far as we've studied Jeremiah. But this one hits close to home. Derek Kidner comments, It's one thing to grow eloquent over a dire prospect for a wicked nation. Quite another thing to taste the medicine oneself. This is another instance of enacted prophecy, wherein the prophet doesn't simply declare the word of Yahweh, but he portrays the word he is declaring. 
The first instance of enacted prophecy we came across in our study was in Jeremiah chapter 13, uh, the, the ruined loincloth. And in that instance, uh, there, there was, you remember we talked about some people don't think that, that the Euphrates there is the Euphrates. They talk about there's a wadi, a dry creek bed that would fill with water during the wet seasons, be empty the rest of the year. That, that makes sense because of this crazy journey of roughly 600 miles, depending where in the Euphrates he went to. Uh, that, that, that would be impossible. But I think this is the much harder uh, enacted prophecy that the prophet had to deal with. Whenever we talk about the, the loincloth, the pain that would be involved there would be measured. It would have a duration. It would have a beginning. It would have an end. This command, the heartache that's involved, would be perpetual. The heartache involved with the sign concerning the loincloth, that was physical and that was temporal. This would strike his soul and it would endure. The journey to get to take the loincloth to the Euphrates and come back, that would tax Jeremiah's body. This enacted prophecy would tax his soul. And anticipating, why, God, why would God do this to his prophet, to his servant? Why would God do this? Is it to spare him some heartache in light of all the suffering and pain that are pending, that are soon to come upon the nation? Is that why God is forbidding a family because of, of how they might be infected by, uh, affected by the, uh, the attack of Babylon on them? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives this counsel to the saints in light of their perilous condition. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So does this command come to spare Jeremiah heartache? And the answer is clearly no. This command comes actually to cause Jeremiah some kind of heartache, some kind of pain. Jeremiah could have easily have preserved Jeremiah's family as he does the prophet. This is not to spare Jeremiah anything. This is to cause him some kind of heartache and some kind of pain as a testimony to the suffering that Judah is going to endure. Jeremiah is loved. There's no doubt of this. And because he's loved, he's used by God to be a picture of God's wrath upon the nation. Why is Jeremiah to not marry, not have children? Verses 3 and 4. He's not to marry or have daughters and sons in this place because concerning the children and sons in this place, concerning the mothers and fathers in this land, they will die. Masses of them. By pestilence, by the sword, by famine, they will die. They will be there will be such a mass of bodies, no one will bury them. No one will lament them. They'll regard the mass as just dung on the ground. It's inconvenient. It's a mess. It stinks. But no one's going to touch it. No one's going to deal with it. They aren't afforded a, a burial, a funeral. They aren't lamented properly. Jeremiah's familylessness testifies 
to this judgment to come upon them. And further reasoning as to why comes as the grounds for the second and third hard commands. Verse 5, 4, thus says Yahweh. So this is a further unfolding. And we have another command. Do not enter the house of mourning. Jeremiah is commanded not to enter two houses. The first house is the house of mourning. Before Judah goes into captivity, before everyone slaughtered, Jeremiah is not to lament or grieve with his people. This anticipates the judgment, verse 4, where they will not be lamented, they will not be buried. Now, Jeremiah has already lamented over Judah. He will continue to do so. In chapter 14, he was given a lament from Yahweh for the people. But in those instances, it's clear Jeremiah is lamenting over Judah. He's not lamenting with Judah. He's lamenting over her, not with her. It's being made clear that Jeremiah is standing with God, recognizing God's judgment on his people as righteous and just. He's standing with God, not with his people. You remember in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, God, uh, through Paul, tells us that we're not to grieve like those who have no hope. We're not commanded not to grieve. We just simply don't grieve as those who have no hope. We don't grieve like pagans do. So because of Judah's apostasy, she grieves in a way that's not godly and righteous. And Jeremiah doesn't participate with them in that kind of grieving and lamentation. He doesn't go into the house of mourning with them. The reason why Jeremiah isn't to participate with them in their grief is because God has taken away his peace. Shalom. He's taken away his steadfast love. That's that rich Hebrew word we talk about, hased, his unfailing covenant love. He's taken away his covenant love. And he's taken away his mercy. When God's judgment falls upon them, they're not to be grieved. Rather, God's justice is to be recognized therein. You saw the same sentiment in chapter 15. God asked, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? Both the great and small, verse 6, will die. And there will not even be a pagan expression of grief. They shall not be buried. No one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. These were acts that were forbidden by the law. Cutting themselves for the dead. Uh, cutting off the corners of the beard or the temples of, the, of their head. These, these were pagan rites, part of their religion. Pagan rituals that had to do with, with the dead and, and the worship of these pagan gods. And so whenever the day comes of God's wrath, they won't grieve. They won't even grieve like pagans. On that day. And on that day, no bread will be given to the mourner, and the cup of consolation won't be given to those who have lost dear ones. Verse 7. Proverbs 31 6 speaks of this cup of consolation, saying, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, 
and wine to those in bitter distress. On this day, a judgment comes, and even this mercy will be forbidden them, as they're made to taste of the bitter dregs of the wrath of God Almighty. But second, Jeremiah is not to go into the house of feasting. So, to put it in modern terms, he's not to go to funerals, he's not to go to weddings. That would be the house of feasting. And the reason is, is that there's a judgment coming in which he will silence the voice of mirth and gladness. What is this voice of mirth and gladness? What is this house of feasting? It's, it's the silencing of the bride and the bridegroom. No more weddings. No one's thinking about getting married anymore when this judgment falls upon them. So Jeremiah is not to marry. He's not to have children. So he's not to go to funerals. He's not to go to any weddings. He's forbidden the most expected of social conventions in his culture. He's alone. He's all alone. He stands with God. Phil Riken captures this well. Jeremiah spent his Friday nights at home alone. There were three things he did not do. Go out on dates, send sympathy cards, or sit down to fancy dinners. Or as another puts it, he was forbidden to marry, forbidden to mourn, forbidden to mingle. Now these commands, though they're circumstantial and they're prophetic, they, they hit with Jeremiah in a way they don't hit with us. Though that's true, I think there's a principle at work here that does impact us. There are weddings we cannot participate in. The quickest way to see this is there are weddings that are not weddings at all. Whenever uh, this world tries to make the north end, tries to celebrate as though the north end of one magnet has been joined in union with the north end of another magnet, we, we just recognize that didn't click. There's nothing, there's nothing to celebrate there. That's all an illusion. There are unions we cannot celebrate because there is no union. We can love the persons involved, but we cannot celebrate with them because in such unions, there's no peace. There's no covenant love. There's no mercy. We cannot, by our presence, communicate to them that we're celebrating the wrath of God coming upon their soul. Especially whenever the name of our God is blasphemously invoked therein. But there are even funerals now that we cannot participate in. Funerals in Christian facilities preached by Christian pastors. One of our elders wisely, predominantly, only goes to visitation now for this reason. He wants to express his condolences, but not condone any false message. It's hard to know, in many instances, what that message might be. And so, I don't want to come down with any kind of hard command here, but we do need to use discretion as best we can. So often today, not only is the, the gospel of Christ sidelined, 
by some kind of good news of the life lived of the recently deceased. But instead of looking to the blessed hope of Jesus Christ, we fix our eyes on the dead and all the good in their life. And that in itself is almost palatable, tolerable, forgivable. But then how often are the dead preached into heaven whenever it's clear, according to God's word, they're suffering in hell. In such cases, let us express our condolences, but let us as best we can also make it clear not to be rude or hurtful unnecessarily, but as time and opportunity would allow, let us make it clear that though we grieve over the dead, we cannot grieve with them as though there is any salvation other than that offered in Christ and Christ alone. Because if Christ isn't known, there's no peace. There's no covenant love. There's no mercy. But all this is a digression, you see. Because the focus is not Jeremiah and Jeremiah's actions and how we should emulate what he's done. The focus is upon this word from Yahweh concerning the judgment that's going to come on Judah. And Jeremiah's actions are for the purpose of making this word of judgment emphatic. This is a severe word of judgment. And thus this severe command upon God's prophet to make it radically vivid. To shock, to awe, to somehow waken. Or rather to show the hardness of their hearts as they fail to understand even this word. It's a judgment so severe that not only will the mirth of weddings be silenced, but their agony is such that they won't even properly lament and bury the dead. This is all because there is no peace, no covenant love, no mercy. God's commands to His prophets may seem hard. But it is the judgment that's portrayed thereby that will prove unbearable. A sinner, if you do not know Christ, your soul is under such wrath and judgment. And it's because we love you that we would not want you to think otherwise. So we would plead with you that you are under God's wrath because we desire you to know His love. As is typical throughout this book, as is typical throughout history, Man replies to this hard word of judgment with questions, verse 10. Three questions. Why has Yahweh pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we've committed against Yahweh 
our God. Sin blinds to sin. That's why it questions so. At the root of all sin is unbelief and pride. Sin hears the serpent's voice, did God really say? And it doesn't believe. And thus it cannot see. It's blind. Arrogance is naturally blinding. It refuses to humbly acknowledge the truth. Sin always thinks itself better than others. Sin always justifies its every sin. As one has put it, we are blinded to sin by our own eye. Well, Judah has asked three questions. Yahweh will provide six answers. Verse 11. Because your fathers have forsaken me, have gone after other gods, have served and worshipped them, have forsaken me, have not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers. In short, because they have broken covenant, this judgment comes upon them. God has kept covenant in blessing them, and now He will keep covenant in cursing them. They have broken covenant. Their fathers broke covenant, and now they have done worse than their fathers, following their own stubborn and evil will, refusing to listen to Yahweh. What you have here is the doctrine of what we call total depravity. Man's will is evil and stubborn. This is the way it was spoken of after the flood. Genesis 8.21 The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It doesn't matter that some particular sin is the deepest desire and longing of your heart and it's always been so. It's as though you were created that way. Well, indeed, you were shaped in iniquity, formed in the image of your father Adam, corrupt and guilty. That sin seems as natural to you as breathing or eating does not excuse any of your sin. It does not legitimize your iniquity. It speaks rather to the depths of your wickedness. And this is why, verse 13, He hurls her out of the land into a land that neither they nor their fathers have known. The image here reminds us of, of the language in chapter 10 and verse 18 where Yahweh says He will sling them out of the land. He will hurl them out of the land the way David hurled a stone at the giant. And in those foreign lands, they will be deserted, abandoned to serve the pagan gods they've whored after and that have proved impotent to deliver them in their distress. They'll be left to them. Because God will show them, verse 13, no favor. Though the next section begins with verse 14, therefore, it goes on to speak of mercy. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it shall no longer be said, as Yahweh lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country. How are these two sections connected? The, the 
stream just got picked up its pace rapidly at this point. How did we... There's a therefore here, but how do these two connect? And that they're connected is clear. Because the first part of this text speaks of Yahweh hurling His people out of the land. The next part speaks of Him bringing them in. But you're left wondering, how? What happened? So the two are related, but how? And as we advance, I think you'll, you'll see the answer. But the major clue comes at the very end. With the words that my name, it, they shall know that my name is Yahweh. So, how a therefore can connect judgment and mercy is we're going to see because of what God is doing that they might know that his name is Yahweh. So, 14, days are coming, and I believe the idea in this kind of language, they'll no longer look at the Exodus and think of that day that God brought them out of that bondage and into the land. They'll look at this more recent deliverance, and the idea is not simply that it's more recent. The idea is that there is something that's going to happen such that a greater redemption is going to occur. There are days of redemption ahead of them that are brighter than those that they have known. And they've known amazing days of redemption. The exodus from Egypt is going to be surpassed by an exodus from Babylon. And though the return from Babylon was full of glory and grace, did it really fit this bill? There wouldn't be a greater mediator or prophet like Moses. There would not be greater signs and wonders at the river turning to blood or the crossing of the, the, the river, the sea. There wouldn't be greater blessing such that they experienced before. There wouldn't be a greater covenant. Indeed, it would be the same covenant. Well, all this is true only if you're looking at the immediate fulfillment of these promises. The days anticipated here span much further into the future. Isaiah uses rich imagery from the Exodus to speak about another Exodus and its greater fullness saying, Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, and the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. You see the providence in the wilderness, just as manna was provided and water from the rock, same imagery. But this is one to eclipse it. It goes on. To give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. 
This hope of redemption that's held out here is not something less than what they've known. It's something more. Everything that they've known has been a shadow and an anticipation of something greater yet to come. But before the days of redemption, there's judgment. He will send forth fishers and hunters before the good shepherd is sent to gather the sheep, fishers are sent to gather for a devouring, and then those that escape, the fishers, the hunters will find and slaughter. This fisherman imagery is frequently used by the prophets as an image of judgment. Ezekiel, as Ezekiel quite frequently does, takes it further than anyone else. Ezekiel 29, I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beast of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. So the fishermen gather the masses for devouring, and then the hunters come. And those who have fled to the mountains, to the hills that are in the clefts of the rocks, the hunters will find. And the reason is because they are not hid. God's eyes are on all their ways. They cannot hide themselves. They cannot hide their sins. And then the but of verse 18, but first... And I think this takes you back to the days that you're, you're longing for, the days of redemption. Before those days, but first, this is the last thing he's going to expound on that will happen before the days of redemption. First, I will repay doubly. This is a verse that troubles especially those who have a justice kind of bent in our day and time. Because God, so often we're told, He rewards each according to His own work. He's a God of righteousness and justice. But the idea here is metaphorical and it's simply this. There is something due. There is a reckoning due for Judah's harlotry. And on the day of judgment, there will be no doubt that payment has been made. That's the idea of the metaphor. What is owed, it is paid. Certainly, no one doubts it. They got what was owed. The grounds of this judgment is that they've polluted his land with the carcasses of their detestable idols. Their, their idols are no living thing, they're just a shell. They're dead. And the land's been polluted, so before Yahweh will bring them back to the land, they must be judged for how they've defiled it. And then... As seemingly out of place as this word of redemption that came in verse 14 is a word of praise now on the lips of Jeremiah. Jeremiah praises God that he's his shelter, his refuge, his stronghold, his strength. But he goes on to praise him, to glorify him, not because of Judah being brought back into the land, but the nations. 
To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. In repentance, they claim that what is made is no God because God is maker, not made. The nations are turning from their idolatry. Why are they repenting in this way? I think the answer as to why can be seen in the consequence of their repenting. Verse 21. The nations are repenting. Verse 21, Yahweh says in response to this rejoicing of Jeremiah that the nations will come to God. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. So the why of verses 19 through 20, I think, can be answered in the who of verse 21. Who's being made to know? I'll make them know. This once I will make them know. And they shall know. Who's the them? Who's the they? Grammatically, verse 21 could refer either to Judah or the nations. The nearest antecedent is the nations. But I don't think that's who it's referring to. And the reason I don't is the words this once, which I think the New American Standard does better justice to, it has this time. I will make them know this time. The idea being there were other times, but this time they will know. So think about those new covenant promises we've already looked at before in Jeremiah chapter 31 and 32 about the new covenant in which they will know him. This time, I'll make them know. And then further, you see how this continues, this Exodus kind of theme of language. Knowing His might and power and that His name is Yahweh. And so, this is not the first time that we've seen, nor will it be the last, that Judah's restoration and the nation's Repentance are linked together. Jeremiah chapter 3. When you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, he's speaking to his people, Judah, Jerusalem, uh, Israel. In those days, take to be the same days spoken of in verse 14. In those days, declares Yahweh, they shall no more say, You see, they're no longer going to talk about the days of old. They'll no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. There are days coming in which the redemption will be fuller, brighter, more glorious to where you won't recall the shadows that were anticipating it. He says, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. But the phrase that I think really confirms and illuminates this, is that the purpose is that they shall know that His name is Yahweh. While 
all of this harmonizes with the new covenant language that we find in Jeremiah 31 and 32, where I think this really gets illuminating is comparing it to the new covenant language we find in Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36, God says He scattered His people because they profaned His name. 36.21 of Ezekiel, I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. And Yahweh then says He will act to redeem His people for the sake of His own holy name. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is Ezekiel 36.22-26, Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh. The nations will know. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So here, in the restoration of Israel, not simply being restored to their land, but being restored in their being. In that, not only will they know Yahweh, but he says the nations will know that he is Yahweh. This is that greater redemption that was spoken of earlier that's being anticipated. This is that greater redemption where the ark is no longer looked to because the glory anticipated therein has dawned and risen And then chapter 36 goes on to say that they, Israel, will know that I am Yahweh. Why have the nations repented? Because of the redemption God does in Israel. God promises redemption and then Jeremiah sings of the nations coming. Ezekiel 36 again. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be built and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, the land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am Yahweh. I've rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am Yahweh, I have spoken, and I will do it. So the nations will know because of what Yahweh does in faithfulness to His promises to Israel concerning the new covenant. God made promises to this people. And as He fulfills them, the nations will know. Now we're being told here 
that as a consequence of the nations knowing, repenting, his people will know. Paul unfolds this mystery in Romans 11 when he asks, Has God rejected his people? And he answered, By no means. He goes on to say of Israel, So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? God has a plan with Israel to bring the Gentiles in. And He has a plan with the Gentiles to bring Israel in that His elect, the true Israel, His bride, the church, the body of Christ, that every one of them for whom He shed their blood might be one in Him. Our new hearts are given to us as a fulfillment of this new covenant promise made to His people. We are the children of Abraham by faith in Christ. And the son of David is our king. And so understanding all this, now contemplate Paul's question. Romans eleven twenty four. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, engrafted contrary to your nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own tree? Why are the nations repenting? Because of God's faithfulness to His promises of redemption to His people Israel. Why will Israel know Yahweh? Because of what God is doing right now in bringing the nations to repentance. Why has God done all of this? That every one of us might know that His name is Yahweh. A God, He explains to Moses the meaning of that name, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And the full revelation of that name comes in Jesus. whose name means Yahweh saves. He outshines Moses. Achieving a greater victory. Crushing the serpent's head. He has made the greater redemption. Purchasing our freedom. With his own blood. That is of the precious lamb of God. He is the final word of revelation and knowledge of God. As he is God incarnate. The radiance of his glory. He establishes the new covenant. In his blood. A covenant that will not fade in glory. Like the old did. We are now pilgrims. And one day our exodus will be complete. But know that even now, the days of restoration have already come in Jesus who is gathering His elect from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And making them holy. And He will come again. And He will restore us all 
to the promised land, the new earth, where the temple and the ark will be no more, and the glory of the Lamb will be the light and center of all. And there, we will more and more fully know His power and His might. We will know that His name is Yahweh. And on that day, we will never know again lamentation or the pain of death. We will not go into the house of mourning on that day because we will enter the house of feasting as the joy of the bride is consummated in the presence of the bridegroom. And so can you not see why, in light of such promises, even though he had received such hard commands, Jeremiah would respond with praise? And should not we all? God grant mercy that in light of such global promises of redemption that we participate in in Christ, we would joyfully receive His every command and providence that His name might be known. Let's pray. Holy Father, who can fathom your plan, your wisdom, who can mine the depths of your grace and mercy. To you belong all glory, all honor, all praise. Thank you for your Christ and grant us grace that he might be magnified in your people as we act as your humble, as his humble bride submitting to him, knowing His love is only intended, even in its harder commands, to make us radiate with His own incomprehensible, unfading glory. In His name we pray. Amen.